Section 18 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 2. The Odyssey. Episode 10. Wandering Rocks. Part 2. Ma! Almidano Artifoni said. He gazed over Stephen's shoulder at Goldsmith's knobby pole. Two carfuls of tourists passed slowly, their women sitting four, gripping the handrests, pale faces, men's arms frankly round their stunted forms. They looked from Trinity to the blind, columned porch of the Bank of Ireland, where pigeons rucucooed. Ancio o avuto di questi dei, Almidano Artifoni said, Candero Giovini com lei, e poi me sono convinti ciò il mondo è una bestia. E peccato, perce la sua voce, sarebbe un caspite de rendita, via, invece lei si sacrifica. Sacrificio incruento, Stephen said, smiling, swaying his ash plant in slow, swing-swung from its midpoint, lightly. Speriamo, the round mustachioed face said pleasantly, ma dia rete a me. By the stern stone hand of Gratan, bidding halt, an Inchicor tram unloaded, straggling highland soldiers of a band. Chi rifletero, Stephen said, glancing down the solid trouser leg. Ma sul serio, eh? Almadano Artifoni said. His heavy hand took Stephen's firmly, human eyes. They gazed curiously an instant and turned quickly towards a dalky tram. Ecolo, Amidano Artifoni said in a friendly haste. Venga e trovarmi e ci pensi. Adio, ciao. Arrivederla, maestro, Stephen said, raising his hat when his hand was freed. E grazie. Dice, Amidano Artifoni said. Scusi, eh? Tante belcose. Amidano Artifoni, holding up a baton of rolled music as a signal, trotted on stout trousers after the dalky tram. In vain he trotted, signaling in vain among the rout of bare-kneed gillies smuggling implements of music through Trinity gates. Miss Dunn hid the Capel Street library copy of The Woman in White far back in her drawer and rolled a sheet of gaudy note-paper into her typewriter. Too much mystery business in it. Is he in love with that one, Marion? Change it and get another by Mary Cecil Hay. The disc shot down the groove, wobbled a while, ceased, and ogled them. Six. Miss Dunn clicked on the keyboard. 16 June, 1904. Five tall-white-hatted sandwichmen between Money Penny's corner and the slab where Wolf's Tones statue was not, yield themselves, turning H-E-L-Y-S, and plodded back as they had come. Then she stared at the large poster of Marie Kendall, charming soubrette and listlessly lolling, scribbled on the jotter sixteens and capital S's. Mustard hair and dauby cheeks. She's not nice-looking, is she? The way she's holding up her bit of a skirt. Wonder, will that fellow be at the band tonight? If I can get that dressmaker to make a concertina skirt like Susie Nagel's. They kick out grand. Shannon and all the boat club swells never took his eyes off her. Hope to goodness he won't keep me here till seven. The telephone rang rudely by her ear. Hello? Yes, sir. 
No, sir. Yes, sir. I'll ring them up after five. Only those two, sir, for Belfast and Liverpool. All right, sir. Then I can go after six if you're not back. A quarter after. Yes, sir. Twenty-seven and six. I'll tell him. Yes. One, seven, six. She scribbled three figures on an envelope. Mr. Boylan, hello. That gentleman from Sport was in looking for you. Mr. Lenahan, yes. He said he'll be in the Ormond at four. No, sir. Yes, sir. I'll ring them up after five. Two pink faces turned in the flare of the tiny torch. Who's that? Ned Lambert asked. Is that Crotty? Ringabella and Crosshaven, a voice replied, groping for foothold. Hello, Jack. Is that yourself? Ned Lambert said, raising in salute his pliant lath among the flickering arches. Come in. Mind your steps there. The vesta in the clergyman's uplifted hand consumed itself in a long, soft flame and was let fall. At their feet its red speck died, and moldy air closed round them. "'How interesting,' a refined accent said in the gloom. "'Yes, sir,' Ned Lambert said heartily. "'We are standing in the historic council chamber of St. Mary's Abbey, where Silken Thomas proclaimed himself a rebel in 1534. This is the most historic spot in all Dublin.' O'Madden Burke is going to write something about it one of these days. The old Bank of Ireland was over the way till the time of the Union, and the original Jews' temple was here too before they built their synagogue over in Adelaide Road. You were never here before, Jack, were you? No, Ned. He rode down through Dame Walk, the refined accent said, if my memory serves me. The mansion of the Kildares was in Thomas's court. That's right, Ned Lambert said. That's quite right, sir. If you will be so kind, then, the clergyman said. "'Next time to allow me, perhaps?' "'Certainly,' Ned Lambert said. "'Bring the camera whenever you like. "'I'll get those bags cleared away from the windows. "'You can take it from here or from here.' "'In the still faint light he moved about, "'tapping with his lath the piled seed bags "'and points of vantage on the floor. "'From a long face a beard and gaze hung on a chessboard. "'I'm deeply obliged, Mr. Lambert,' the clergyman said. "'I won't trespass on your valuable time.' "'You're welcome, sir,' Ned Lambert said.' Drop in whenever you like. Next week, say. Can you see? Yes, yes. Good afternoon, Mr. Lambert. Very pleased to have met you. Pleasure is mine, sir, Ned Lambert answered. He followed his guest to the outlet and then whirled his lath away among the pillars. With J.J. O'Molloy he came forth slowly into Mary's Abbey, where draymen were loading floats with sacks of carob and palm-nut meal, O'Connor, Wexford. He stood to read the card in his hand. The Reverend Hugh C. Love, Rathcoffee. Present address, St. Michael's, Salins. Nice young chap he is. He's writing a book about the Fitzgeralds, he told me. He's well up in history, Faith. The young woman with slow care detached from her light skirt, a clinging twig. I thought you were at a new gunpowder plot, J.J. O'Molloy said. Ned Lambert cracked his fingers in the air. God, he cried, I forgot to tell him that one about the Earl of Kildare after he set fire to Cashel Cathedral. You know that one? I'm bloody sorry I did it, says he, but I declare to God I thought the Archbishop was inside. He mightn't like it, though. What? God, I'll tell him anyhow. That was the great Earl, the Fitzgerald Moore. Hot members they were, all of them, the Geraldines. The horses he passed started nervously under their slack harness. He slapped a piebald haunch quivering near him and cried, Whoa, Sonny! He turned to J.J. O'Molloy and asked, Well, Jack, what is it? What's the trouble? Wait a while. Hold hard. With gaping mouth and head far back, he stood still, and after an instant, sneezed loudly. 
Chow, he said. Blast you. The dust from those sacks, J.J. O'Malloy said politely. No, Ned Lambert gasped. I caught a cold night before. Blast your soul, night before last. And there was a hell of a lot of draft. He held his handkerchief ready for the coming. I was Glasnevin this morning. Poor little, what do you call him? Chow! Mother of Moses! Tom Rockford took the top disc from the pile he clasped against his claret waistcoat. See, he said, say it's turn six. In here, see? Turn now on. He slid it into the left slot for them. It shot down the groove, wobbled a while, ceased, ogling them. Six. Lawyers of the past, haughty, pleading, beheld pass from the consolidated taxing office to the Nisi Prius court, Richie Goulding carrying the cost bag of Goulding, Collis, and Ward, and heard rustling from the Admiralty Division of King's Bench to the Court of Appeal an elderly female with false teeth, smiling incredulously, and a black silk skirt of great amplitude. See, he said, see now the last one I put in is over here, turns over, the impact, leverage, see? He showed them the rising column of discs on the right. Smart idea, Nosey Flynn said, snuffling. So a fellow coming in late can see what turn is on and what turns are over. See, Tom Rockford said. He slid in a disc for himself and watched it shoot, wobble, ogle, stop. Four. Turn now on. I'll see him now in the Ormond, Lenahan said, and sound him. One good turn deserves another. Do, Tom Rockford said. Tell him I'm boiling with impatience. Good night, McCoy said abruptly. When you two begin, Nosy Flynn stooped towards the lever, snuffing at it. But how does it work here, Tommy? he asked. Tuvaloo, Lena Hen said. See you later. He followed McCoy out across the tiny square of Crampton Court. He's a hero, he said simply. I know, McCoy said. The drain, you mean. Drain, Lena Hen said. It was down a manhole. They passed Dan Lowry's music hall, where Marie Kendall, charming soubrette, smiled on them from a poster, a dauby smile. Going down the path of Sycamore Street beside the Empire Music Hall, Lenahan showed McCoy how the whole thing was. One of those manholes like a bloody gas pipe, and there was the poor devil stuck down in it, half choked with sewer gas. Down went Tom Rockford anyhow, bookie's vest and all, with the rope round him. And be damned, but he got the rope round the poor devil, and the two were hauled up. The act of a hero, he said. At the Dolphin they halted to allow the ambulance car to gallop past them for Jervis Street. This way, he said, walking to the right. I want to pop into Lynham's to see Scepter's starting price. What's the time by your gold watch and chain? McCoy peered into Marcus Tertius Moses' somber office, then at O'Neill's clock. After three, he said, who's riding her? Oh, Madden, Lenahan said, and a game filly she is. While he waited in Temple Bar, McCoy dodged a banana peel with gentle pushes of his toe from the path to the gutter. Fellow might damn easy get a nasty fall there coming along tight in the dark. The gates of the drive opened wide to give egress to the vice-regal cavalcade. Even money, Lenahan said, returning. I knocked against bantam lions in there, going to back a bloody horse someone gave him that hasn't an earthly. Through here. They went up the steps and under Merchant's Arch. A dark-backed figure scanned books on the hawker's cart. There he is, Lenahan said. Wonder what he's buying, McCoy said, glancing behind. Leopoldo or the Bloom is on the rye, Lenahan said. He's dead nuts on sales, McCoy said. I was with him one day, and he bought a book from an old one in Liffey Street for two bob. 
There were fine plates in it worth double the money, the stars and the moon and comets with long tails. Astronomy it was about. Lenahan laughed. I'll tell you a damn good one about comets' tails, he said. Come over in the sun. They crossed to the metal bridge and went along Wellington Quay by the river wall. Master Patrick Aloysius Dignam came out of Mangan's late Farren box, carrying a pound and a half of pork steaks. There was a long spread out at Glen Cree Reformatory, Lenahan said eagerly. The annual dinner, you know. Boiled shirt affair. The Lord Mayor was there. Val Dillon it was, and Sir Charles Cameron and Dan Dawson spoke, and there was music. Bartell Darcy sang, and Benjamin Dollard. I know, McCoy broke in. My missus sang there once. Did she? Lenahan said. A card, unfurnished apartments, reappeared in the window sash of number 7, Eccles Street. He checked his tail a moment but broke out in a wheezy laugh. But wait till I tell you, he said. Delahunt of Camden Street had the catering, and yours truly was chief bottle washer. Bloom and the wife were there. Lashings of stuff we put up, port wine and sherry and curacao, to which we did ample justice. Fast and furious it was. After liquids came solids. Cold joints galore and mince pies. I know, McCoy said. The year the missus was there. Lenahan linked his arm warmly. But wait till I tell you, he said. We had a midnight lunch, too, after all the jollification, and when we sallied forth it was blue o'clock the morning after the night before. Coming home it was a gorgeous winter's night on the Featherbed Mountain. Bloom and Chris Callanan were on one side of the car, and I was with the wife on the other. We started singing glees and duets. Lo, the early beam of morning! She was well primed with a good load of Delahunt's port under her belly band. Every jolt a bloody car gave, I had her bumping up against me. Hell's delights! She has a fine pair, God bless her, like that! He held his caved hands a cubit from him, frowning. I was tucking the rug under her and settling her boa all the time, know what I mean? His hands molded ample curves in the air. He shut his eyes tight in delight, his body shrinking, and blew a sweet chirp from his lips. The lad stood to attention anyhow, he said with a sigh. She's a gamey mare and no mistake. Bloom was pointing out all the stars and the comets in the heavens to Chris Callanan and the Jarvie, the great bear and Hercules and the dragon, and the whole jing-bang lot. But by God, I was lost, so to speak, in the Milky Way. He knows them all, faith. At last she spotted a weeny-weeshy one miles away. And what star is that, Poldy? says she. By God, she had Bloom cornered. That one, is it? says Chris Callanan. Sure, that's only what you might call a pinprick. By God, he wasn't far wide of the mark. Linehan stopped and leaned on the river wall, panting with soft laughter. I'm weak, he gasped. McCoy's white face smiled about it at instants and grew grave. Lenahan walked on. He lifted his yachting cap and scratched his hind head rapidly. He glanced sideways in the sunlight at McCoy. He's a cultured all-round man, Bloom is, he said seriously. He's not one of your common or garden, you know. There's a touch of the artist about old Bloom. Mr. Bloom turned over idly pages of the awful disclosures of Maria Monk, then of Aristotle's masterpiece. Crooked botched print plates. Infants cuddled in a ball in blood-red wombs like livers of slaughtered cows. Lots of them like that at this moment all over the world, all budding with their skulls to get out of it. Child born every minute somewhere. Mrs. Purefoy. He laid both books aside and glanced at the third. Tales of the Ghetto by Leopold von Sacher Masoch. That I had, he said, pushing it by. The shopman let two volumes fall on the counter. Them are two good ones, he said. Onions of his breath came across the counter out of his ruined mouth. He bent to make a bundle of the other books, hugged them against his unbuttoned waistcoat, 
and bore them off behind the dingy curtain. On O'Connell Bridge many persons observed the grave deportment and gay apparel of Mrs. Dennis J. McGinney, Professor of Dancing, etc. Mr. Bloom alone looked at the titles. Fair Tyrants by James Lovebirch. No, the kind that is. Had it? Yes. He opened it. Thought so. A woman's voice behind the dingy curtain. Listen, the man. No, she wouldn't like that much. Got her at once. He read the other title, Sweets of Sin. More in her line. Let us see. He read where his finger opened. All the dollar bills her husband gave her were spent in the stores on wondrous gowns and costliest frillies. For him! For Raoul! Yes, this. Here. Try. Her mouth glued on his in a luscious, voluptuous kiss, while his hands felt for the opulent curves inside her dishabille. Yes, take this. The end. You are late, he spoke hoarsely, eyeing her with a suspicious glare. The beautiful woman threw off her sable-trimmed wrap, displaying her queenly shoulders and heaving embon point. An imperceptible smile played round her perfect lips as she turned to him calmly. Mr. Bloom read again, The Beautiful Woman. Warmth showered gently over him, cowing his flesh. Flesh yielded amply amid rumpled clothes, whites of eyes swooning up. His nostrils arched themselves for prey. Melting breast ointments, for him, for Raoul. Armpits, oniony sweat, fish gluey slime, her heaving embon point. Feel, press, crushed, sulphur dung of lions. Young, young. An elderly female, no more young, left the building of the courts of chancery, king's bench, exchequer, and common pleas, having heard in the Lord Chancellor's court the case in lunacy of Potterton, in the Admiralty Division the summons, ex parte motion, of the owners of the Lady Cairns versus the owners of the Bank Mona, in the Court of Appeal Reservation of Judgment, in the case of Harvey versus the Ocean Accident and Guarantee Corporation. Flemmy coughs shook the air of the bookshop, bulging out the dingy curtains. The shopman's uncombed gray head came out, and his unshaven, reddened face, coughing. He raked his throat rudely, puked phlegm on the floor. He put his boot on what he had spat, wiping his sole along it, and bent, showing a raw-skinned crown, scantily haired. Mr. Bloom beheld it. Mastering his troubled breath, he said, I'll take this one. The shopman lifted eyes bleared with old room. Sweets of sin, he said, tapping on it. That's a good one. The lackey by the door of Dillon's auction rooms shook his handbell twice again, and viewed himself in the chalked mirror of the cabinet. Dilly Dedalus, loitering by the curbstone, heard the beats of the bell, the cries of the auctioneer within. Four and nine, those lovely curtains, five shillings, cozy curtains, selling new at two guineas. Any advance on five shillings? Going for five shillings. The lackey lifted his handbell and shook it. Barang! Bang of the last lap bell spurred the half-mile wheelmen to their sprint. J. A. Jackson, W. E. Wiley, A. Monroe, and H. T. Gahan, their stretched necks wagging, negotiated the curve by the college library. Mr. Dedalus, tugging a long mustache, came round from Williams's row. He halted near his daughter. "'It's time for you,' she said. "'Stand up straight for the love of the Lord Jesus,' Mr. Dedalus said. 
Are you trying to imitate your Uncle John, the cornet player, head upon shoulder? Melancholy God! Dilly shrugged her shoulders. Mr. Dedalus placed his hands on them and held them back. Stand up straight, girl, he said. You'll get curvature of the spine. Do you know what you look like? He let his head sink suddenly down and forward, hunching his shoulders and dropping his underjaw. Give it up, father, Dilly said. All the people are looking at you. Mr. Dedalus drew himself upright and tugged again at his mustache. Did you get any money? Dilly asked. Where would I get money? Mr. Dedalus said. There is no one in Dublin would lend me fourpence. You got some, Dilly said, looking in his eyes. How do you know that? Mr. Dedalus asked, his tongue in his cheek. Mr. Kernan, pleased with the order he had booked, walked boldly along James's street. I know you did, Dilly answered. Were you in the Scotch house now? I was not then, Mr. Dedalus said, smiling. Was it the little nuns taught you to be so saucy? Here, he handed her a shilling. See if you can do anything with that, he said. I suppose you got five, Dilly said. Give me more than that. Wait a while, Mr. Dedalus said threateningly. You're like the rest of them, are you? An insolent pack of little bitches since your poor mother died. But wait a while. You'll all get a short shrift and a long day from me. Low blackguardism. I'm going to get rid of you. Wouldn't care if I was stretched out stiff. He's dead. The man upstairs is dead. He left her and walked on. Dilly followed quickly and pulled his coat. Well, what is it, he said, stopping. The lackey rang his bell behind their backs. Barang! Curse your bloody, blatant soul, Mr. Dedalus cried, turning on him. The lackey, aware of comment, shook the lolling clapper of his bell, but feebly. Bang! Mr. Dedalus stared at him. Watch him, he said. It's instructive. I wonder will he allow us to talk. You got more than that, father, Dilly said. I'm going to show you a little trick, Mr. Dedalus said. I'll leave you all where Jesus left the Jews. Look, there's all I have. I got two shillings from Jack Power, and I spent tuppence for a shave for the funeral. He drew forth the handful of copper coins nervously. Can't you look for some money somewhere, Dilly said. Mr. Dedalus thought and nodded. I will, he said gravely. I looked all along the gutter in O'Connell Street. I'll try this one now. You're very funny, Dilly said, grinning. Here, Mr. Dedalus said, handing her two pennies. Get a glass of milk for yourself and a bun or something. I'll be home shortly. He put the other coins in his pocket and started to walk on. The vice-regal cavalcade passed, greeted by obsequious policemen out of Parkgate. I'm sure you have another shilling, Dilly said. The lackey banged loudly. Mr. Dedalus, amid the din, walked off, murmuring to himself with a pursing, mincing mouth, gently. The little nuns, nice little things. Oh, sure, they wouldn't do anything. Oh, sure, they wouldn't really. Is it little Sister Monica? From the sundial toward James's gate walked Mr. Kernan, pleased with the order he had booked for Pulbrook Robertson, boldly along James Street, past Shackleton's office. Got round him all right. How do you do, Mr. Crimmins? First rate, sir. I was afraid you might be up in your other establishment in Pimlico. How are things going? Just keeping alive. Lovely weather we're having. Yes, indeed. Good for the country. Those farmers are always grumbling. I'll just take a thimbleful of your best gin, Mr. Crimmins. A small gin, sir. Yes, sir. Terrible affair, that General Slocum explosion. Terrible, terrible. A thousand casualties. And heart-rending scenes. Men trampling down women and children. Most brutal thing. What do they say was the cause? Spontaneous combustion. Most scandalous revelation. Not a single lifeboat would float, and the fire hose all burst. 
What I can't understand is how the inspectors ever allowed a boat like that. Now you're talking straight, Mr. Crimmins. You know why? Palm oil. Is that a fact? Without a doubt. Well, now look at that. In America, they say, is the land of the free. I thought we were bad here. I smiled at him. America, I said quietly, just like that. What is it? The sweepings of every country, including our own. Isn't that true? That's a fact. Graft, my dear sir. Well, of course, where there's money going, there's always someone to pick it up. So I'm looking at my frock coat. Dress does it. Nothing like a dressy appearance. Pulls them over. Hello, Simon, Father Cowley said. How are things? Hello, Bob, old man, Mr. Dedalus answered, stopping. Mr. Kernan halted and preened himself before the sloping mirror of Peter Kennedy, hairdresser. Stylish coat, beyond a doubt. Scott of Dawson Street. Well worth the half-sovereign I gave Neary for it. Never built under three guineas. Fits me down to the ground. Some Kildare Street club toff had it, probably. John Mulligan, the manager of the Hibernian Bank. Gave me a very sharp eye yesterday on Carlisle Bridge, as if he remembered me. Ahem! Must dress the character for those fellows. Knight of the road. Gentlemen. And now, Mr. Crimmins, may we have the honor of your custom again, sir? The cup that cheers but not inebriates, as the old saying has it. North Wall and Sir John Rogerson's quay, with hulls and anchor chains, sailing westward, sailed by a skiff, a crumpled throwaway, rocked on the ferry wash. Elijah is coming. Mr. Kernan glanced in farewell at his image. High color, of course, grizzled mustache, returned Indian officer. Bravely he bore his stumpy body forward on spatted feet, squaring his shoulders. Is that Ned Lambert's brother over the way? Sam? What? Yes. He's as like it as damn it. No, the windscreen of that motor car in the sun there. Just a flash like that. Damn like him. Ahem! Hot spirit of juniper juice warmed his vitals and his breath. Good drop of gin, that was. His frocktails winked in bright sunshine to his fat strut. Down there Emmett was hanged, drawn, and quartered. Greasy black rope. Dogs licking the blood off the street when the Lord Lieutenant's wife drove by in her noddy. Bad times those were. Well, well. Over and done with. Great topers, too. Four bottle men. Let me see. Is he buried in St. Mikan's? Or no, there was a midnight burial in Glasnevin. Corpse brought in through a secret door in the wall. Dignam is there now. Went out in a puff. Well, well. Better turn down here and make a detour. Mr. Kernan turned and walked down the slope of Watling Street by the corner of Guinness's visitor's waiting room. Outside the Dublin Distillers Company's stores, an outside car without fare or jarvie stood. The reins nodded to the wheel. Damn dangerous thing. Some temporary Boston endangering the lives of the citizens. Runaway horse. Dennis Breen with his tomes, weary of having waited an hour in John Henry Menton's office, led his wife over O'Connell Bridge, bound for the office of Messrs. Collis and Ward. Mr. Kernan approached Island Street. Times of the Troubles. Musk asks Ned Lambert to lend me those reminiscences of Sir Jonah Barrington. When you look back on it all now, in a kind of retrospective arrangement, Gaming at dailies. No card-sharping, then. One of those fellows got his hand nailed to the table by a dagger. Somewhere here Lord Edward Fitzgerald escaped from Major Sir Stables behind Moira House. Damn good gin, that was. Fine, dashing young nobleman. Good stock, of course. That ruffian, that sham squire with his violet gloves gave him away. Of course they were on the wrong side. They rose in dark and evil days. Fine poem, that is, Ingram. They were gentlemen. Ben Dollard does sing that ballad touchingly. 
masterly rendition. At the siege of Ross did my father fall. A cavalcade in easy trot along Pembroke Quay passed, outriders leaping, leaping in their, in their saddles, frock coats, cream sunshades. Mr. Kernan hurried forward, blowing pursily. His Excellency, too bad, just missed that by a hair. Damn it! What a pity! End of section 18. Read by Richard Wallace, Liberty, Missouri, September 9th, 2010.